0: listeners before we dive in a quick question for you what is the content you would want to read in a newsletter from us get creative be truly honest we're really curious what would make you sign up for and open our emails because we are resurrecting them after they've been in the pits for a long time and we want to give you what you want hit us up at hello at dearwhitewomen.com with your answer
1: all right now on to this episode You heard us talking with Alex Chester Iwata the other week on the show, and just a brief recap, she's third generation Japanese American, and at the time that this is being aired, she's already been the first family member in decades to visit Japan. So maybe like some of you listening, she has no direct experience with the immigration story, right? And more recent immigration to the United States. Because let's say if you're like her, your family feels like it's always been here in America. And just a little aside there. Well, you know, (laughs) I was like giggling. That could be true unless you don't look white, in which case you're made to question if you're American enough all the time. But, you know, we digress. We'll circle back to this one in a bit.
0: So that experience that Alex has of being mixed Asian is really different, in my opinion, than what Misasha, you and I grew up with as daughters of Japanese immigrant parents right? I think we each grew up visiting our parents' extended families in Japan and kind of feeling at home in a different country outside of the United States. And it got us wondering, what is the impact of immigration on the Asian American experience, on the immigrant experience even? you know, Can we explore how the psychological impact of immigration might actually be a missing part of the discussion when it comes to deconstructing some of the common stereotypes that we have here of Asians right now? And I'm really curious, how might that impact mixed Asians in America today? Let's dive in. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial hosts, Sasha and Sarah. I think I changed up our intro a little bit this week, Uh, (laughs) totally unintentionally, but biracial Japanese and white, I think that was obvious by the introduction. But You know that we love facts here on Dear White Women, and this episode is no exception.
1: I don't think you can say that enough, actually. I just love hearing the word facts these days.
0: (laughs) Real facts, not fake facts. Facts and truth. Love it. In fact, did you see what I did there? (laughs) Uh, You can all eye roll if you're listening. It's okay. We're going to start with some statistics on the percentage of Asian immigrants in the United States. Because while the media is focused really heavily on immigration from our southern borders... In 2018, get this, immigrants from Asia combined accounted for 28% of all immigrants, which is close, but an even larger share than the share of immigrants coming from Mexico, which was 25%, right? People born on the continent of Asia account for 31% of the nearly 45 million immigrants in the United States. So Asians now represent 6% of the total US population, and they are the fastest growing population segment, 103% growth between 2000 and 2023, right? This is not being covered in the mainstream media. And I think this is an important point here. According to the Center for Migration Studies, there are over 1.7 million undocumented immigrants from Asia and the Pacific Islands, which is 17% of the total undocumented population living in the United States. So all of the harmful rhetoric about undocumented immigration, it actually hits the Asian community really hard and rarely do Americans know it. So to emphasize this point, 59 percent of Asian Americans today are foreign born. Right By comparison, just putting that in context, 14 percent of all Americans and 17 percent of adults were born elsewhere. But 59 percent of Asian Americans were born elsewhere. And a lot of this new wave of immigration is actually due to changes in immigration law. It's not something uh, like nefarious. It's just that law changed. And that happened only starting in 1965 when the Immigration and Naturalization Act, which is also known as the Hart-Celler Act, was passed. 1965. Most of our parents were very alive at that stage, so it was not that long ago. But only then did that get rid of quota systems and replace them with category-based policies that prioritize things like Family reunification, skilled labor, refugees. And that's what finally allowed more Asian folks into the United States.
1: Yeah, when you said 1965, actually, I think that's the year that my dad came to the US. So not through Heart Seller. But yeah, it is right. I don't think we can emphasize the recent nature of that enough. And you know, in order to understand the significance of the Heart Cellar Act, I think we need to do a very quick primer on Asian immigration restrictions in the United States. And I know everyone's like, yay, this is exactly what I want to talk about and hear about (laughs) because more laws, the better. But it's really, really important because it's also this is an ancient history either, right? Because we only need to go back 150 years to start when fears about the influx of Chinese labor led to the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, which explicitly banned Chinese immigrants from entering the country and prevented current Chinese residents from becoming citizens. Later, because you know it worked really well, it was expanded to include all Asians, thereby becoming the first law in the United States to limit immigration based explicitly on ethnicity. And I think that also can't be overstated. That's a huge barrier.
0: Right, because you were letting immigrants in from other parts of the country. Those that looked Asian from Asian countries were not allowed in.
1: And so that wasn't it, right? Then there was the Emergency Quota Act of 1921, which implemented a quota system based on nationality that, no surprise here, overwhelmingly favored Western European immigrants and barred immigrants from the vast majority of Asia and Africa. So as you know, I mentioned, my deep love of facts, if you're looking for factual support, the annual quota From this act from Europe was roughly like 350,000 people compared to just 1,261 people from Asia and 122 from Africa. That was the annual quota. I'm shocked. I know. That is shocking. I know. I know. And then in 1943, Mostly because China had become an ally of the U.S. against Japan until China realized that there was a super racist quota act in effect. Congress re- sort of repealed all exclusion acts and provided current Asian residents a route to seek naturalization. So they did that, except the quota system and anti-immigration sentiment didn't change. So you can change the laws, but you can't change the sentiment necessarily. All right, so let's fast forward 30 years forward, and now we have the civil rights movement, which was fought largely by Black Americans in this country, leading to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And that outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. As a result, immigration laws based on national origin came under serious review. hello, as they should. Absolutely. Right. So, you know, now we're at the Hart Seller Act, which completely removed the quota system and instead created a system that relied on preferences for immigrants who were highly skilled in fields that the Department of Labor deemed understaffed or who had existing family relationships within the United States.
0: Which let's be clear, there weren't that many existing family relationships for Asian Americans at that point because they've been so squeezed and limited, but they were growing.
1: Yes, well, let's asterisk that for a moment because it did actually become fairly important. Because, as an aside, interestingly enough, and maybe because they were largely white, legislators at the time believed that you know the Heart Seller Act was more symbolic than anything else. And even LBJ, after signing it, said that the Heart Seller Act was not a revolutionary bill and does not affect the lives of millions. And I think he probably meant millions of white Americans. And let's remember that, even though this act passed, it wasn't without a whole lot of xenophobic anxieties around Asian immigration and some requests for reconfirmation. And this is from, you know, Congress, that those who were arriving would still be majority European,
0: so yikes. Like that's so interesting, again, going back to some of the policies we've seen certain presidents instill that bar people that look a certain way or from certain parts of the world. That doesn't seem like it's changed all that much in certain circles.
1: No, remember, you can change the laws. You can't necessarily change the sentiment in the same way. So anyway, the white legislators who wanted that reassurance, they might have gotten it at the time, but the reality was really different because two things, right? The family reunification clause and that desire for skilled labor, right, led to a lot of Asian immigrants. By 1975, the population of Asian immigrants in America had doubled. And by the early 2000s, 80% of immigrants to the United States came from Asian or Latin America, right? Or Asia or Latin America, which really changed the face of American society quite literally. So yeah, I'm sure there were Europeans coming too, right? But that was the direct result of the Hart-Celler Act.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah. And that means that there's a lot of new Asian immigrant reality right there, right? Because if Heart Seller Act was passed in 1965, that's not that long ago. One that you and I both know intimately, right? This Asian immigrant reality, each of us being the child of a Japanese immigrant parent. And there are even newer ways of Asian immigrants, right? As we know friends whose children go to school with our own who have come to the United States as adults. We know what they're not talking about when it comes to pressures.
0: And this is so exciting for me in like an intriguing, like self-potentially flagellating kind of like understanding sort of way because- like, where are you going with
1: this? I can't wait.
0: No, I think it'll be really interesting because I don't think people talk about the psychological pressures of being an immigrant, of being the child of an immigrant. Because I don't think you imagine this scenario, right? When you pick yourself up out of your country and you move to another one, right? Imagine that you're- leaving the U.S. and moving to Portugal for a better life, which is something that I've heard
1: a lot of Americans talking about lately. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, that's an oddly specific country, but yes.
0: (laughs) It was very, it's supposed to be one of the top places for people to retire to, but don't tell anybody. (laughs) Anyway, you get to ask yourself when you're leaving, right, and you move to a different country, are you expecting to assimilate to this new culture, right, this idea of a melting pot, Or are you expecting some sort of multiculturalism, like a salad bowl, all the pieces exist in one place? You've got to decide, well, how much American culture are you going to keep, right? How will your new community look at you if you roll up in can be a little obnoxious here, but like white sneakers with socks and you stay really loud like so many American travelers are when they go abroad. Like, will you start to feel like you need to assimilate a little, maybe learn the language of your new country, adopt some of the mannerisms, change some of your attire? Like European attire is different than American attire. All of those questions, I think, are a source of stress. And it definitely leads you to do some thinking at the very least about who you are and who you want to be and what it means to be in a different environment than the one that you grew up in. So I feel like that's one thing. And then say you throw in some of this stuff that you talked about, this anti-immigrant climate, the xenophobia, which is the hatred or fear of foreigners or strangers or of their politics or of their culture, and then like actual discrimination and, and hate even, right? That significantly impacts the lives of immigrants, so I took something from the American Psychological Association because they noted that many immigrants are discriminated against in employment, their neighborhoods, service agencies, and schools. And the reasons of this include your immigration status, your skin color, your language, your income, and your education levels, right? It makes me really think about those awful times you hear stories of about Americans, like mocking other people for their accents, where when I hear that or see that, I see like, are you not understanding... That these people who are speaking accented but otherwise pretty fluent English, like they're speaking two languages fluently. How many languages does a typical American speak? Not two, right? Or when you hear conversations we've had about what you talked about before, these false narratives of immigrants stealing people's jobs. You know, I you wrote about this in a chapter of our book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism. And you quoted a scientific American study that points out that oftentimes, immigrants are doing the work that Native-born Americans don't want to do. Farming, construction, business services. And this misperception, this harsh judgment, and this hatred of immigration for whatever storyline you're concocting to make up a reason why you don't like it, it has got to stop. And I think we open this whole conversation saying that some people feel like they're not understanding the immigrant experience because it's so far removed. But Unless you're of Native American descent, which I think we all sort of toss this story out, but you need to really think about it. Everybody here came to this country courtesy of immigration and colonization. You just happen to be born here at this time. So I think it's really important to question whether you want to be a hypocrite or not. All right. Sorry. Maybe that came on a little bit strong.
1: No, I love it. But
0: (laughs) I think to take a step back, if you're the child of immigrants, as we were, I feel like you grow up in a house with more stress than white locally born Americans, right? You have to put up walls against hatred. You have to decide how you're going to bridge the divide between your native culture and the one we have here in America. And unless you've decided to become a citizen, generally speaking, you would basically just have a green card. You can't vote. So you can't even have a say in the systems that are impacting you and your family. So you're kind of helpless, right? Yeah. With all of this extra stress.
1: Yeah, I think this is such a powerful conversation because I I do not think, and maybe this is the theme of our whole arc right now, that these conversations are being had, right, in a lot of rooms when we specifically talk about the recent immigrant experience in this country.
0: Right. Because, I mean, I think it was only recently because we started doing some of this work. It was actually after the Atlanta shootings and we started really talking about what our Asian identities mean to us. And, you know, for those who've listened, I've gone through this whole arc of exploration and self-identity since that time. And I asked my mom, like, Do you consider yourself Asian American? And she kind of looked at me. She's like, I was born in Japan. Like, I am Japanese. And yes, I have an American citizenship now, but I never thought of myself as Asian American. And and we don't have these conversations. I don't ask my mom, like, what was the immigrant pressure? Like, right. It's not a conversation (laughs) that is had. You get, you put your head down and you do the work. You just get through. Right. Yeah. So. It's a privilege to be able to have this reflection. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think like then the question becomes, right, what do immigrants do about this? How do they handle this? Because according to the APA, again, living in ethnic communities seems to protect immigrants from cultural isolation, which in turn benefits their psychological adjustment. So that seems like a good thing. However, the APA notes, pressure to assimilate may be strong outside their ethnic group and lead to discrimination and its negative consequences. And I think we've heard a lot of stories about this. The APA also notes that new immigrants of color who settle in predominantly minority neighborhoods often have virtually no direct, regular, and intimate contact with middle-class white Americans. This in turn affects their opportunities to hear and use English, the quality of schools their children attend, and their access to desirable jobs.
0: That is mind-blowing to think about it from that perspective, right? Where did you choose to live? That can affect the language that you then potentially get mocked for not being able to use, but you're trying to protect your identity.
1: Well, and sometimes it's not even a choice, right? Like, where are you able to live?
0: Right. Well, I mean, I think in until the mid-1900s, like, there were very clear places that you could and could not live if you were not white, right? So I feel like this conversation about where you choose to settle is really... Important, right? Do you choose to settle within your community, which insulates you, or without your community, which makes you even more of a target for your differences, but you're trying to assimilate? So thinking about inside the home, then I think it's important to note that the vast majority, like 86% of Asian immigrants five and older say they speak a language other than English at home. Like they're carrying their native language into their homes. And then the other thing in terms of settling that you and I have talked about is food. Right On the show, we're like, we've lived in a lot of different cities around the United States, but never in one that did not have an Asian food market in it. You and I even personally know, as a child of an immigrant parent, we needed access to the foods that we grew up with. So I feel like that's great that we had the opportunity to do that. But if you don't and you live without your community for example, and you start eating foods that are outside the culture you were raised in that aren't native to your genetic heritage almost, right? How does that impact your health and your mental health, your physical and mental health? I wonder.
1: Yeah. Great question. And then,
0: right? Well, then what do you do for your kids? I mean, you uprooted yourself from your native country for a reason. You generally want a better life. And so you want better for your children. I mean, you want that at the best of times. I want what's best for my kids having not immigrated, right? But if you made your life more challenging by relocating, I feel like you'd really, really want to make sure your kids are getting the best. So I feel like that's another layer of pressure right there. Not so much some inherent like ness as the model minority myth might have you believe, but because of the immigration pressure. If you want to learn more about that, we did do a whole episode, episode 114, on deconstructing the model minority myth. So go check that out if you haven't already heard that. But I feel like that one is especially important to listen to if you are from a family of or if you are yourself, people in this newer wave of Asian immigrants, like this post-Heart Seller Act after the civil rights struggle led by Black Americans in this country, because interrogating the model minority myth is key to the all of us or none of us piece that you and I keep talking about on this podcast. That is one of the things that remains a barrier to the all of us there. So you got to understand that.
1: Okay. So I think that this is such a, a great foundation and let's layer on one more piece because we talked about it at the start of the podcast. What if you're not just the child of an Asian immigrant or two Asian immigrants, right? But you're a biracial or multiracial child of one Asian immigrant and someone else whose immigration story is very different, right? Maybe comes generations prior. If you are this kid and, you know, I think we both speak from experience here, You have to navigate these pressures, all those pressures that we just talked about, these competing dynamics, even, you know, really questioning how you internalize things like the model minority myth, because your own home is bridging cultures, constantly negotiating, questioning, choosing priorities and refinding what it means to be part of that particular family and how your family's immigration story plays out there, messy parts and all. And then if that wasn't enough, what if no one is talking about this part with you because you're quote, not Asian enough, super heavy air quotes, or your immigration history isn't as easily defined when it's only one parent who's an immigrant, or your other parent may not want to discuss this, or you feel an internalized pressure to choose one race or the other, sometimes intentionally and sometimes by default. You know, I I think there are a lot of questions that we just threw out there that I don't think I've ever heard discussed, like besides in groups of mixed race individuals. Of you and I on text chains, small groups of mixed race individuals. But you know, I think just to throw a little asterisk here too as we talked about on several podcast episodes now, it's not like this, you know, happened so many years ago and is a generations upon generations phenomenon because this whole mixed Asian concept is new, right? Interracial marriages were not legally permissible on a federal level until loving, the Loving case, Loving v. Virginia in 1967, which was just a few years before either of our parents got married. And if you wanna hear more on the timeline of Loving and the Supreme Court itself, we do cover this in episode 217. So be sure to go back and listen because as, as we were just talking about, this is a conversation that we never grew up hearing. And because we're some of the OGs, like based on the timing of loving, you know, in this space, we're determined to make sure that our kids don't grow up the same way without these conversations. And maybe this applies to your kids as well. You know, for those of you who are interested in how mixed Asian mixes break down, because I can hear some of you thinking like, well, we talked about the stats of Asian immigrants and recent Asian immigrants in the United States. What does the mixed Asian component look like? Well, multiracial and Hispanic Asians comprise 14% and 3% of the Asian population in the United States, respectively. And remember, the Asian population is roughly, what did we say, 6% of the United States? So while this is a growing number, this isn't still a significant part of the Asian population. Those who identify as Asian and white make up a large majority, 70 percent, of non-Hispanic multiracial Asians. And that includes the two of us. And Sarah, that's your kids as well. So that seems to check out, right, at least for us.
0: Totally. Of the 19 origin groups included in a 2021 analysis that we reviewed by the Pew Research Center, Japanese-Americans are most likely to identify as multiracial non-Hispanic right, which is 32 percent, around 18 percent of Filipinos and 15 percent of Koreans also identify as multiracial non-Hispanic. Asian Hispanics, meanwhile, are the smallest segment of the nation's Asian population. A 34 percent plurality of this group is Filipino. And if you just heard us say that Filipinos are identifying as both non-Hispanic multiracial individuals and as Hispanic multiracial individuals, you did not mishear. We definitely dug into that a little bit because Want to make this like sort of differentiation here. Since Hispanic is conventionally defined as an ethnic category, while Filipino is officially a category of race, the intersecting identities of Hispanic Filipinos appears alongside other groups like Punjabi or Japanese Mexican Americans or Caribbean Hispanics of different races or black Mexicans, right? These are all examples of what's called ethno-racialization. And that's another layer of complexity when we consider both the Asian and mixed Asian experiences in the United States. So new vocabulary word for today, ethno-racialization.
1: So important.
0: I really hope this episode brings some awareness to what the Asian immigrant experience might mean, not only for so many people in our generation who are the children of Asian immigrants, but for our children who may be more removed, who may be biracial or multiracial, and who may be struggling with so many of the identity questions that, Misashi, you and I both did growing up as the biracial daughter of Japanese immigrant parents. We would love to hear your stories. If you're open to sharing, reach out to us, because the more that we shine a spotlight on these stories, the more that we won't be alone in our individual journeys. And that truly gets us just that much closer to all of us. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.